Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. My long-term feelings for the industry are really strong. It just, it goes against history. Why wouldn't it again be interesting to people? It will transform itself, but we just don't know what that's going to be. When we're looking at fashion coming up, what would you want to see? What would you feel most inspired by? I hope an explosion of self-expression. I'm fully confident that someone else is going to come along, other writers, and they're going to come in and they're going to look at it totally differently. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. This week, we have a very special conversation with fashion critic, Kathy Horan. For Kathy, the pandemic has ushered in yet another transformation for fashion media. In our latest episode, she sat down with BOF's editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, to talk about the upcoming shows that will happen later this month, a mixture of both physical and live events, and her outlook for a post-COVID-19 fashion industry. Here's Kathy Horan, Inside Fashion. Hello, Kathy. Here we hey, are Timmy, today. How are you? I'm good. You're in um, Virginia. I'm on the farm. Yeah. You're in Minerva Farm in Virginia, and I'm in Maida Vale in London. And mm-hmm. roundabout now, we could be looking forward to seeing each other at fashion shows, as we have done for the last how many years? Do we want to actually? Uh, say Thirty-five. I think it's like. Something like 1987, 88, isn't that it? Yeah, yeah. Is it about, about that? You were at the Detroit yeah. Press? No, Detroit News. Detroit, Detroit News. News. And I was we at met Toronto at the Fashion Magazine in Canada, in Toronto, Canada. Um, and we could never have anticipated what's happened to the world because it's just, we read about things like this in history. And, um, mm. and 
you know, our industry has been so savagely impacted by everything that's happened. And it's, it's great that we're talking today because I subscribe to New York Magazine and you're, um, you write for The Cut, the New York Magazine, mm -hmm. and you've just done this enormous piece interviewing designers about the here and now of their lives and the future of the industry. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be talking about today. So that's perfect. So, oh, yes. <laughs> I can just say to you, um, tell us what you've been doing with um, <laughs> designers for the last... Well, I mean, you know, it started out, you know, Stella Bugby, uh, who runs The Cut, we were talking in uh, late April, I think, about like, what do we want to do for the August book? Um, and it ended up being part of the, the, the main magazine in the preview section of what's happening in the fall. But anyway, we started talking about that. And I said, you know, I really just, I want to talk to the the leading designers, you know, the, the big creative minds. Um, and, you know, where are we sort of going? I mean, it just feels so different even now when I think about how we all felt, what, on March 2nd and March 3rd when we were still in Paris and winding up with, you know, the Balenciaga show and the Vuitton show and those last days and felt so innocent, but then it felt quite different by the end of April, obviously with Europe all shut down and the US, at least New York, shut down. And so anyway, everybody, you know, it's it's Raph Simmons, Mark Jacobs, Nicola, Jeskier, Mucha, Ray Kalkuba. There's there's 12 or 13 in all. And um, so everybody was home. So I had lots of time to talk to them and they had lots of time. And we talked in some cases three times over the summer or we texted or we had, um, um emails that kind of thing so it was fun now was there any consensus um among these well, people about what the future holds i think they all have a different view specifically of how people want will probably want to dress um some bring that out pretty clearly like nadege at hermes i think a lot of people are really concerned um you know the the you know, like what's going on with the fashion system? They have people who have been talking about that ad nauseum for a while. So that came up a lot. Raf had a lot to say about that. Um, I think they, they certainly spent the month of March and April thinking a lot about this, Mark Jacobs, a lot. And he put some of that up on his Instagram too. You know, coming off that incredible show that he did in February in New York and just thinking and, you know, he, he had to lay off people on his um, design team and others had to take salary cuts and that's a problem across the industry. And so they were talking a lot about that. And then of course, Alessandro from Gucci, you know, brought his, his Instagram out. Uh, when was that mid-May saying, we're gonna go to two, two meetings, two, two runway shows a year. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of this stuff has been brewing you know, and the bottom line is, I mean, to me, I think it comes through in the pieces. It's all an individual choice, you know, like, you know, Michael Kors has made his decision what he's gonna do. I think Gucci's made their decision. Talk to Michael Burke for this piece, who's the CEO of Vuitton. And, um, you know, they're gonna, you know, he thinks that the, the traveling runway show is the future. 
So all that concern about, you know, how big the shows, I think, I think in the long run, we'll see, a, a, I mean, in the short run, we'll see, a, you know, a pause as, you know, as we, as we deal with the pandemic and we don't know what quite the, 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 the end game is on that. So I think we, we've seen a lot of experimentation in the last six weeks, two months with digital perform, you know, digital shows and presentations and, um, and I think going forward, you know, I, you know, it's a huge industry. I think that's the thing that is bleak as it seems, it is a huge industry. And, um, and I think that this, this, the recession as steep as this one is, you know, if you look at um, the numbers, at least on the luxury end, you know, it's what, 6% compounded annual growth over the last 20 years with one bad year, which was 2009. Obviously this is gonna be a bad year, but it sort of suggests that down the road, what a year from now to, you know, who knows what it is, but that, that, that it, will, it, will, it will resume its pace. That would be my guess. But that pace, the, 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 I, fi I find it interesting that people are talking about the, in every, in every endeavor, actually, people have said that this has been five years worth of change in five months. So actually the scenario that, that people envisaged in all their businesses was a fairly negative one or, or else one that acknowledged that everything needed to change, but the change wasn't coming until something as radical as a pandemic forced it to happen. And you know, in fashion, we've been talking for years about what needed to change. You know, everybody knew what was wrong with fashion, but it didn't right. change. And what, what had to happen was this, this absolute disruption, this, this, this kind of global interruption in the normal, normal, uh, scheme of things, and I do not see, uh, you know, how do people reprioritize fashion after what we've been through, when we haven't even started, really, we haven't even started the economic downturn, that's the result right. of what we've seen so far, you know, in, in the UK, people are still furloughed, so mm -hmm. when the furlough ends, when there's no job to go back to when we're already seeing people. I mean, the, the, the very idea of evictions is so extraordinary, so extraordinarily inhumane. But, you know, I suppose landlords would say, we've got to put bread on the table as well. Well, you know, where does fashion fit into a scenario that I don't think we've even seen the beginning of yet? Yeah, I don't think so either on that. Um, I think it's not on people's minds. Uh, although it's it's such a, I say that and I'm, I, I catch myself because I think in other parts of the world, it is on people's minds still. I think where, you know, there's been signs in China that, you know, the, you know, the numbers on the Vuitton Men Show, for instance, um, some numbers out of Hermes, um, you know, so I think it's hard to, we see it from our perspective here and in, in either in Western Europe or in the United States. And um, I agree. I mean, I think that it's, it's 
it's, it's, you know, this recovery, the economic part of this is going to take a number of years. And, and then the midst of that, why will people be interested in looking at clothes and all of that and buying and, you know, if you, you know, uh, that seems unlikely in a way. And then I, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, fashion has a way, it's, a, it's such an enormous, you know, people are fascinated by it. They have been fascinated by it. Whether it's, I keep thinking like two years, you know, it's not gonna, you know, we don't even know if we're gonna be doing, you know, covering shows on a, like, like we did until possibly next fall. Um, and so I don't know. I think that it's um, it's going to take a it's going to take a, a little bit. And as you said, it's like what happens in the interim? Do people sort of lose the connection with fashion? Do they, they stop caring? No. I think there'll be another generation that will care. I mean, I think my long term feelings for the industry are really strong. It just it goes against history that it will, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it again be interesting to people? It will transform itself, um, but we just don't know what that's gonna be. In, and I, but that transformation could be two or three years in the process. And what does that transformation mean for people like us who've, who've, who've been watching the industry through its incredible changes over the last three decades? 25. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, the way that um, fashion inserted itself into popular culture, the way it went from being a niche, um, the way something like haute couture went from being a niche to becoming a mass entertainment in a funny way. Right. The way that right. the fashion industry generated the star system where I could talk to my mother in, you know, my she's 91 now, but she would ask right. me, about Karl Lagerfeld. Now, 40 years ago, she wouldn't have been asking me about Cristobal Balenciaga. So it, just the, the, the fact that fashion became a popular entertainment, um, right. it just, it, and we were part of that. We were, we were the, the people who commented on the entertainment, the way movie critics commented on movies and music critics wrote about music in Rolling Stone magazine or whatever. Um, where does that leave us? What does that turn us into? Are we dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's, it's the, it's, I love it. I love it. I love the whole pattern of this. I, I love it. You were, I was watching you yesterday when you were talking to the, to, with, with Lauren and Rachel and Robin. And I was thinking like, gosh, it's, it's the, you know, that's the big sweep of fashion history. It's like, if you think of how it was in the 19th century and the 18th century and, and uh, and what we've gone through and what we got to see in the 20th and all the the changes in the craft and and you know and there have been incredible writers all the way back to the 1830s at least there was an amazing writer in the 1830s who, who who's hard to even top today the way she covered fashion there's great and they all they all did something different they all you know I think of 
the way some of the early journalists in the 20th century, docu they documented every little scrap of fabric that everybody wore. Every, you need a dictionary to understand what the frig they're talking about in some of those early fashion you know, columns that came out of France in the 19th century and were distributed all over the world by early forms of like, they weren't Condé Nast, but they had that same setup of, you know, the Russian edition of something and the, the bon US ton. edition and the hmm? Bonton. What? The Bonton? No, no, no. It was before Bonton. There was like a whole bunch of uh, I forget the names of them, but they're in the 1840s and and they came out of Paris and Berlin. Uh, and yeah, so people and so but you know, people were people journalists adapted to whatever was going on at that time. And then obviously you've got the turn of the century of the 20th century and all these, the beginnings of all these brands really, no one called them that, but whether it was Poiret and people starting to do marketing and doing perfumes and packaging like Chanel, you know, genius at early packaging. Um, you know, all that stuff, you know, it, it's just that, you know, I think, in the last 25 years, it's been such a massive disruption because of the internet and social media. And I was thinking, you know, and when I was working on this piece that just came out, I was thinking about Nicola Jesquier and I met him in 1999. And, you know, we would all go to those shows that he did at the Convent de Cordelier. How do you can never pronounce it? You know what I mean? Over near yeah, the- Cordelier. Couvent de Cordelier. Yeah. 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 And we would go and see these somewhat intimate crazy shows his and first collection the soundtrack the original the soundtrack from the original suspiria because he loved horror movies and that really stayed with me that first show he did that suspiria no, that and that silhouette he did and think of, think of all the trends that he started when he started mm. doing those cargo pants that everybody knocked mm. off and you know Scooter. but that that yeah, that system had that stopped. I mean, you know, nobody produces a trend like that. It's like it's like a million trends that come out of something. You might get a little traction on something, but no, I think that you know, I, I think that it means that there, are, you know, you can cover it. Sort of what Robin was suggesting a little bit yesterday. You know, you can go to New York and cover this experience and just cover it as a journalist, not really reviewing it. You can. Um, I think you 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 can look at it like that. I think that down the road, I, I mean, I think it's an it's going to be an adjustment for everybody covering covering fashion. Um, I certainly think it should be covered. I think it's such a massive industry. It's also as a form of creative expression, it's really hard to beat. I mean, when you look at the last couple of seasons, you know, whether it's at Mark or Balenciaga. Um, what's coming up with Raph and Mucha. These shows actually, you know, there's a huge, you know, audience for them, but they are a reflection of culture and what's going on. And um, I don't think that ever changes. And I think there's also a young audience that continually comes in. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of half joking about the dinosaurs. I mean, I just think it's the, it's the nature of, the evolution of things. There's always, you know, I'm fully confident that someone else is going to come along and other, other, other writers, a young Timmy and a young Kathy 
and they're going to come in and they're going to look at it totally differently and they're going to they're going to also just write about it now you said you said the you you mentioned the internet as being the the moment where things change but actually it was way before the internet that people like you started to write about fashion in this serious um convincing way that created a whole new audience i think that was timed in a funny way for the arrival of fashion on the internet so there was a there was a whole new audience i think that 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 kind of reached the point where style.com came into the picture and people would read critical evaluations of fashion shows in a way that they had never done before and there was a sort of for the first time ever in writing about fashion there was actually a pantheon of people that the industry could refer no. to i no before then who i mean really like well, there was never a, a kind of cabal of of fashion writers like there was in the art world or movie critics there was never a pauline kyle of fashion criticism was there yeah kennedy fraser kennedy I, fraser i don't think kennedy fraser was a critic i thought she was a a commentator though she wrote she didn't no, write no, she i mean i agree that she wrote, she wrote she was on her own she's she was stewy generous if you will yeah or lois long before her um maybe dorsey you know Abby was really funny. She could she was hilarious. When she did, wouldn't get invited to a show, she wrote a famous review about going to the hairdresser instead. <laughs> um but uh no, I mean there's 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 yeah, I mean probably there's just more there became more writers doing it. And I think um I think also there was a generation right before us that tended to be in the newspaper world anyway, tended to be a little bit kid glove about what they wrote. I mean, you know, go back to Eugenia Shepherd too. I forgot about Eugenia. So she's early 60s and she could be a tough nut. She could be sharp about stuff. And don't forget Fairchild too. I mean, I don't know how much he wrote, I don't remember, but he certainly set the tone for how sharp women's wear could be again, you know, uh, uh, about certain designers. But would you um, agree with what Robin said yesterday that that actually the reason why there wasn't that sort of credence attached to writing about fashion is because people considered fashion to be a, a woman's world. Uh I don't know. I mean I I I think that seems like yes it is it's yeah it's the irony of the whole thing. It's like, you know, you think about men's fashion, you know, I mean men really were the up, up until the middle of the 19th century men were the were all the risk takers until the until the the invention of the suit, you know, the modern suit, and then they got a uniform, and then they stepped out of fashion, and no, and it all ended up on women, you know, and you know, it's like women became part of, you know, department stores were created around women, as the these consumers, you know, like the first department store in New York had all these features that would attract women consumers, and then it became our burden in a way our blessing and our burden because we could express ourselves in clothes in the way that men couldn't because they were wearing suits just plain old dark suits and they didn't want that association with with frivolous fashion so yeah and it's funny because i think of all the 
the writers, I mean, Gloria Emerson is a great, was a great writer at the New York Times in the 60s. And I mean, whenever I need to go back, whenever I need to go look at something to understand about fashion and the world of 1968 in Paris, I go see what Gloria wrote about. She was so sharp. But she hated covering fashion. It was stupid. She thought it was, you know, the only it was the only way she could get to Paris. So she took that job, and she really, you know, she ended up covering the Vietnam War for the Times. So yeah, it does have that association. But I kind of disagree with Robin about that. I think that that shifted a lot. I think it's on an individual basis. Writers came along, and they showed it was it could be a serious thing to write about. It you could write about it with humor. I, you know, I mean. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I think that that's, I think it changed a lot about that. I never felt, I never felt that. I never felt like, you know, it wasn't, I think, I always felt it was sort of my job to make it, to make, to, to reach those, those guy readers, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the men or women really, who didn't have any interest in fashion, who just wanted to read it to be, to know what's going on or to be slightly amused. Well, I but I think that the coverage of fashion reached a critical mass along around the same time as the cover the written coverage of fashion reached a critical mass around the same time as the other forms of coverage of it elevated. I think that as I think when fashion became this kind of swirling star system in the early 90s, I think that was a real moment for covering it for people where there was there were voices like yours that that you know suddenly excited followings that you know Gloria Emerson I'm sure she was a fabulous writer but I doubt that she excited the kind of following that you had covering fashion in the early 90s you know that's when that's when people wanted to read about fashion when they didn't have to be persuaded to, when they sought it out and they wanted to see what people thought about someone like Versace, who they'd never heard of before, or, or you know, I, I just, I, my, my benchmark is always my youngest brother who, who's, who reduced the fashion industry to Armani perfume, Versace murdered, Tom Ford, oh, I don't remember how we, no, we'd never heard of Tom Ford, um, but that's really, the fashion industry came down to like some pretty basic notions. And yeah. I think it kind of expanded so radically in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, in a funny way with, you know, the people of Gloria's generation, um, you know, they really, they resented the fact that for decades, the women on newspapers got the soft jobs. They couldn't get into the hard news jobs. So it's you have to see her career in that context, you know, the 60s and 70s of women trying to get into more serious positions and get more powerful jobs, editors jobs and things like that. So by the 90s, I mean, yeah, it's, um, you know, I looked at it as, as, an, as an, I saw the generation before mine. And again, that sort of kid glove, you know, that they couldn't be critical because they were maybe too close to the designers. I don't know. I felt like it was like, like simply like, let's change it up a little bit. Let's do something. And also I kept thinking that it should be like baseball, you know, it should be, mm. you know, it, it's like if you're covering the baseball season, 
it's no different. Or if you're the boys on the bus, that's, which is the name of a book on um, uh, political coverage, doesn't necessarily mean it's just about boys, but um, yeah, that you can you can you can write about it as a play by play, and um, that you're that you're covering these designers season after season after season, and I, and I think yeah, I think that the audience started to get more. You know, there's, you know, I think the face had a big thing, a big deal. I think that changed a lot of things for, for the industry. You know, it brought a different crowd of people in. The magazine. The, um, face. the magazine, the face, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that certain designers, look, that also, you know, the Belgians arriving at the end of the, end of the 80s, it introduced for all those people, I mean, as much as you and I love Terry Mugler, and loves sitting through all those with Lipsinka on the runway and the and the incredible Gautier shows and um, the Montana shows. I loved your discussion about Montana. I will always remember standing the sound of feet on the wooden floor at the tents in the Cor Carré and all the no smoking signs and everyone lighting up you know, and what and sitting in the back and watching those incredible performances that he gave. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it, that was a you know that was a big generational shift when the when when those guys came in the Belgians that is, and then you have Helmut. So it kind of you know you again you bring in a different you bring and also it became the beginning of the era of stylist too. Mm. You know, I think of the Melanie Wards came along in the 90s, started becoming aware of the stylist. So, so it goes back to what you're saying, all these different personalities, different people playing a role. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. 
Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. In fashion. But that also, I mentioned cable television, when cable TV started covering fashion. Same time. And it was interesting. Yeah, because, Elsa. You know, I Elsa was, Clench. The what? Elsa Clench. Oh, Elsa and then Jeannie Becker mm-hmm. and then Fashion File, which I did. But, you know, I was dealing with management who loved the look of a Vivian Westwood show or a Betsy Johnson show online. And they didn't like the look of a Helmut Lang show so much because it really wasn't anything happening. There weren't cartwheels and there weren't huge skirts and there wasn't Naomi Campbell falling over in like six inch heels. And I think that in a funny way, that had a big influence on fashion too because designers started playing to the gallery and you had people like Isaac Mizrahi who would do a show which looked fabulous on television. And you had designers do, I mean, Galliano, Gauthier, uh, and then later on McQueen shows looked amazing on TV. Designers like Helmut, um, Montana, less so because the st- I, as I was saying yesterday, the incredible stillness of those shows where you wanted yeah. to kind of, yeah. watching them on TV, you wanted to press kind of, fast motion to kind of just get the get it all going um that was a, that was a kind of weirdly divisive moment too uh, and you know i remember lee edelcourt the um the the how would you describe lee edelcourt the woman who kind of defined trends for the fashion industry um she was a what would you not a cool hunter that's too um that's too crass but Anyway, I remember she once said to me that style.com had been the worst thing that ever happened to the fashion industry because people got used to seeing it in two dimensions. You know, they got used right. to seeing these little thumbnails right. of these looks. Bang, bang, bang. In a funny way, cable right. TV did it no service either because if you were doing a show that was, you know, really focused and minimal, <laughs> it just didn't look good on television. So, um, right. 
there were all these other, then it became our duty to tell people how incredible Helmut Lang was. If all they ever saw was a thumbnail or a video of this, you know, it was, you were, I found myself always saying to people, you know, people would say, I read your review and I just was so excited to look at the pictures. And then I looked at the pictures and I was like, Mm, what happened? <laughs> I mean, did that ever happen to you where you, 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 you were telling people, no, really, you had to be there. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, it certainly happened with Margiela. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. trying try to describe how fabulous it was to be sitting on a washing machine in the Salvation Army and seeing plastic garbage bags. I mean, really, it was modern. And you're like... Nah, you know, it's but some change ways the way you, you dress, yeah. It's gonna change the way you dress, and it did actually. It did. You just didn't realize it took twenty years for it all to 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 trickle down and be adapted by other people and interpreted. I mean, yeah, it's that that does happen. But yeah, no, it 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 it, it it's it's funny about that. It's like, yeah, there's always that thing with fashion. I mean, I think it's what we also really like. We meaning the writers and the, you know, um, the people who work in studios, the stylists. I mean, some of my favorite conversations have been, you know, like I'm thinking like seven or eight years ago of going up to see Lagerfeld at Chanel and running into Amanda Harlick. And Amanda says, and she's sussing out the show that let's say it's one of Nicola's Balenciaga shows and I have my take and I'm like crazed about how fabulous it is and wonderful and then there's Amanda breaking it down from a whole different perspective so I guess my, my point is is that that's the thing that is still kind of I guess will always be true of fashion that when you get a helmet or when you get somebody who's new coming along like Romeo Gigli back in the day I mean we all look kooky wearing those clothes but uh, I think it was, that's the inside part of it. And inside has such a strange negative connotation right now, but I think it's the, it's the fun of discovering something. And then we all sit around and talk about it or we you know, try to break it down or try to, it was probably true of Nicola in the very beginning of Balenciaga too. It was a little hard to explain what that is, what that was. But, you know, I think that's what we, we kind of, appreciate it cherish is probably too sentimental a word but it's we definitely appreciate that that sense of discovery and we also realize that some of that stuff is the is the fashion that moves the needle that moves the historical needle of fashion um and yeah we're, we're we get to see that um and it it the fact that it can't be broken down so easily for a mass audience is part of the appeal. Um, and it doesn't translate so well on television or on a video screen. Our first date was at the Romeo Gili store in Milan, you know. Well, that we was our dessert, together. actually. That was our dessert. We had, we met at the Fiera. You were, you were tormenting Susan Menkes. You were tormenting her. Do you remember why? Why were we we were tormenting Susie Makers about the Duchess of Windsor? Were we? No. Correct. Why were we tormenting yes. Susie Makers? Yeah. 
Yes, and then we okay. Then we went to the Romeo Gili store. Now, you you mentioned in your um, in your piece yesterday, you mentioned that Margiela was a name that came up often with the people, yeah. the designers that you were talking to. Now, why do you think that is? Um, I think you know, I think his name comes up a lot um, in, in, in among among fans of fashion as well. Um, I've noticed that going back a few years, people would always say, young designers would say, you know, my my two goalposts or my two gods in fashion would be Alaya and Margiela. You know, designers who who kept their vision, designers who who stayed the course, who didn't, who, you know, were pretty much independent until the end of their, you know, their careers, um, you know, who um, who did the actual cutting and sewing and, and the design itself and all of that. I think that, you know, I think the, the Margiela movie, the documentary is, has been out for about nine months or so, six, nine months. So I think that's sort of, he's, he's uppermost on their minds. Um, I think that's probably it. That it's that that's the probably the the immediate peg is you know that's what that's what you know Mark brought it up, um, and I think also you know they probably you know the, the exhibit wasn't that long ago. I know Mark went to that exhibit. I ran I ran into him there, but it's it, it's it's I think that the one that was in Paris two years ago. I think about two years. So maybe he's you know but maybe what, designers what look. At you know that there is there is a talking about the future of fashion media, which is our alleged topic today. Um, mm -hmm. th there are there are two strands of thought. One is that people are going to be looking for forever clothing, in the, the, to reassure them as they as they descend into their bunkers. The other is that people are looking are going to want to ex celebrate extravagance and excess and escape. Now, I don't know where, it's a weird thing is, I don't know where Margiela fits on that spectrum because there is something obviously incredibly cerebral about what he did, but at the same time, there is this sort of primal sensuality in a lot of what he did. You know, mm. the, the wrapping of the body, the, the hair, that hair, which was, it's, it's like sort of witch doctor ritual. Um, I mean, fashion is ultimately a very fetishistic ritual. Right. And, and it can be, obviously, it can be a ritual that, that celebrates transcendence, or it can be a ritual that is all about grounding you in some kind of primal, you know, roots. And I think Margiela actually straddled those two worlds when we're looking at fashion coming up, what would you want to see? What, what, would, you, what would you feel most inspired by in what we're about to encounter over the next six months? Well, I think that, I really think that, uh, you know, that there will be a feeling of, of a pause going on. And, and I don't have, um, I think that, people are going to be designers and, and fashion houses are going to have so many limitations, either in production um, 
either in distribution, uh, whether they can get the fabrics they want, whether they can um, have a customer. I think there's so many ups and you know questions in the air about that. A number of the designers I spoke to for this piece said, you know, they really want to think, you know, the, the whole idea of what's essential, what's what can be, that doesn't mean basics, I don't think. I think it means something that is um, something that you feel like you're going to keep, something that is not, you know, that's beautifully made. Um, you know, Nadej spoke about things you that people are going to be still close to home. They're not going to be traveling as much. Again, it's a big world. I think the things that might appeal to somebody in a part of the world where there's more freedom of movement might be very different than how we in the in America and Western Europe are going to think. Um, I do think that over the sh this would be just it's purely a guess, but I think that. But I think it just makes sort of logical sense to have things that are a little bit more, um, I don't know, what's the word? You know, I don't mean about wearing sweatpants and being comfortable. I think people are gonna be sick to death of that stuff. I think we're sick of what we're wearing now. You know, it's like, it's kind of as cool in the beginning, but now it's like, I don't wanna be in this kind of stuff all the time. I wanna, you know, I want to go out. I'm, I'm sort of with Mark. I want to go out. And I'm not going to go out in, in his platform shoes and his spangles and all that. But I get what he's saying. I think, but I think that, that in a couple of years from now, when the pandemic is behind us and the economies are starting to recover, you know, I think all of the protest, I think that this, whether it's, from Black Lives Matter or whether it's about um, the environment or sustainability. There's a lot of protest across the, across the board. People are, I think that you're gonna see this, I hope, an explosion of, of self-expression. I wonder like, you know, how much of it will be led by designers and how much it will be led by all these different groups of people, tribes of people, you know, someone on the internet, um, somebody off, I mean, I find that really interesting. Um, I mean, the big brands will be able to sort of hog the market because of their size and their, you know, the just, you know, they, the, the brand association that they have. But I don't know, I really think that, I think things are gonna be kind of calm and quiet, I guess is what, the, the, is the answer for the short term and very loud and expressive after that. I Once people start going out, go to the theater, go to a restaurant. Are you gonna walk into a restaurant in New York City once the, once the really good restaurants can open, which we don't know when that is, or in London or wherever you might be, Los Angeles, you're gonna to wanna to look great. I can't imagine you, you wouldn't wanna- Aren't you hearing glimmers of of, of a different approach to dressing. Um, you know, the way it used to be when you, you dressed for dinner, for example, and you people right. visualizing their every day. We know that already. We know from people cooking. We know from, from people making handcrafts. You know, I think that's one thing that Jonathan Anderson has isolated beautifully, this interest that people have in making things to fill it's not filling their time. It's actually 
and it's not even going back, it's going forward. But you know, the notion of changing during the day. So I've heard about dinner parties. It sounds decadent, but I, I can appreciate the, the kind of um, inspiration where people are wearing couture for dinner in their houses. Mm. And nobody sees them except them and their bubble of friends, the bubble you're oh. allowed. Couture, whatever, whatever their equivalent of couture is, but this is the way right. things used to be. And, right. you know, your life was fairly stratified and, and you, could, you could infuse fairly basic activities with significance by the way you dressed for them or cooked for them or whatever. And I think that's rather a, a lovely idea that if this thing if this shadow that's hanging over us doesn't pass, if it goes on mutating until it eventually creates this dome over the entire world, like a sort of Stephen King book, which is kind of turning into anyway. Um, you know, I can't decide whether it's the, the, um, the, the, the stand or the dead zone or what's going on, um, especially in America. But, um, you know, I could see that you dial down, you know, you're not, oh, I'm not gonna to go to Tokyo for the weekend, which I used to do. You know, I'm gonna sit in my right. house and make my house special with whatever, right. pictures on the wall, the clothes I wear. I could see that becoming a new kind of, a new focus for people. I, 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 I think what you're saying is true. I can see that, I can see it happening too. I mean, you sort of think like, if you think of going back to the 90s, late 90s, when all the luxury wars started, you know, the buying up of all the houses, the old names, you know, between the Arnos and the Pinos and Tom and Ford and Domenico de Sole and that whole thing that happened. Um, and then it all became about it bags. And, and now it's about, and that sort of fed something that you can, it kind of got away from the idea of like great dressing. It was like, okay, people were saying, you know, everybody's busy, they don't have time to, you know, you know, they don't have the knowledge that they used to have about clothes and blah, blah, blah. And then it became all about t-shirts and sweatshirts. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, this is a very complicated conversation about, you know, how these brands are structured and what they sell. And, and um, some of that is in the piece that we wrote too about, you know, Demna speaking about it and other designers. But, uh, you know, I, I think as humans are, you know, there's this natural thing about wanting to feel better and, and it won't be true. I mean, people will do it in many different ways. I mean, whether it's mm -hmm. someone who does it conservatively and just has an incredible jacket and or incredible suit made, man or woman. Um, I think there's going to be, I think that you'll see a lot of that. I, I, I just, I, I just think that, you know, and how long that will last, who knows? I mean, you know, that's, it's, I just keep reminding myself that it's a huge world and that it is that the, uh, that the way we might think about something and also let's face it, the luxury industry really depends for its growth on new customers. And that's, that is the biggest portion. I mean, these, there's this, the, those people have seeking some, you know, whether it's aspiration or whatever it is that's motivating them, but something that's gorgeous in their lives, something that's flashy in their lives. 
and that's going to keep propelling things. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think that I, I, I think there is going to be. I just think it's going to take a while. We're not going to see it right away. And uh, I am. I mean, I, I live in an. I'm not live in a Stephen King world. I live in the, in a world of that it, things will things will get better because it just stands to reason. <laughs> I'm watching Lovecraft Country and I'm loving it. Um, are you? What do you think Carl would say about all of this? I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about, about what he would be making of this situation right now. It's a ghastly. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I, he'd have so many funny, strange thoughts. Um, but he has, know, he had such a grasp of history. And you know, what know. we're seeing right now, we, we obviously, because we're in it and it's unique to us. So we feel, oh my God, this has never happened before in, in the course of time. But you look at it and obviously it's happened over and over and over again. And, and societies have risen and fallen on less than, than the pandemic we're facing. And, um, yeah, he would, be, he would be a wonderful person to ask because, I mean, his, his, some of his, my favorite stories from Lagerfeld were what it was like to be in Paris in the early 50s and how grimy it was, and working in the couture especially, and how, you know, grubby it was. Um, and, you know, in Paris when, you know, they were still, you know, it's not, it, was, it wasn't like the Paris of today. It was just a dirtier city and like harder London, life. And like, like London that. in so, the 70s, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People forget. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you remember, I remember what that was like going to England, um, certainly in the early 80s. And um, yeah, I think he'd have a really interesting perspective about it. He probably, though, too, because he's Carl and he loves a joke. Uh, is that he would end up doing a collection around all of this. He would create, he would create your dome, your Stephen King dome in the middle of the Grand Palais. And he'd make some, he wouldn't do it right away. He'd have some respect for the situation, but he might do it later on. Um, he'd, he'd certainly contemplate it. That was a very, you know, in his prime, he, he'd, love to, he'd love to imagine things. So I think he would. You know, something that's happened, something we've seen is, is the way that fashion has been um, compelled to open itself to the much wider world and take on issues like uh, diversity and prejudice and um, sustainability, environmental degradation, so on, all the things that fashion has been contributing to and kind of deliberately oblivious of for all the time mm -hmm. that we have been um, engaged in it. How does it change the way you look at the industry? Has it changed? Well, I think it's a wonderful I think, I mean, if you're asking, I think, I think it's the, the, the it's sort of two points. The sustainability issue is, is inevitable. It's already happening. And it's, it's not just Stella uh, who's been, I mean, she started in, you know, as a sort of pathfinder on that, on that, on that subject. But now I think virtually every company, Chanel, Hermes, Balenciaga, you know, uh, Demna said that his, the, his collection that she, he's showing in September is all um, entirely sustainable and um, recycled or in some thing. 
Um, so I think, I think it's just the customers are demanding that younger customers want transparency. They want traceability. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, on the diversity front too, I mean, let's face it, so many brands, so many designers, um, you know, if you look back at their collections from just say three years ago, it's, it's, it, the cast is virtually all white. Um, so, so that's, a problem. I mean, they've already started to address that, but I sort of also think that you're not going to see, I mean, that's great. I don't want to minimize that. I think it's important to represent on, on a runway and in advertising and they, they all can do better. I think they've been moving in that direction and they should move more, but the real change has to be, you know, in, uh, at the director level, at the executive level, at the chief, at the at the creative designer level, I think, you know, I think that's the, you know, you sort of we sort of forget what you know, Paris fashion. If we're looking at Paris, you know, it's sort of still the capital of fashion, you know, in terms of all the different voices that it represents. But mostly, they've been Western voices. For the last 50 years except for the Japanese and um, they've been and I don't just mean in terms of nationality but a perspective that is also non-western and that is so hard to bring into it I think that Demna has done a great job in the last couple of years at Balenciaga bringing in something that feels quite different I think that there's tons of opportunity um, and I, I, I think that's what's going to keep fashion really interesting I mean Michael Burke was sort of making this point when we were talking, he said, you know, you think back like 25 years, 30 years, it was pretty much, you know, a French, you know, speaking about just Paris, it's just pretty much sort of a French situation, French designers, French houses. And, um, you know, and then when, when Galliano and the Queens, you know, started coming into the LVMH world and, um, other designers too. I think I think we can still go. Um, there's just tons of room about where fashion can go, and I think it makes it more interesting in the long run. But I just I think that hopefully will accelerate in the it's, next. It's funny to me how McQueen looks like an outlier, though. You know, he, to me, he. You go back and look at all those shows, and he looks like such an outlier. And it, in what way? What do you mean? Well, just. All those, all those issues he took on that, that um, I think, I think probably we're, we're facing, we're confronting them now, um, but he was so, even in, the, even in that moment, we weren't aware of how on top of a lot of really fundamental questions he was, he was how he was provoking the orthodoxy all the time. And, what what I I mean he was kind of revolutionary I guess if if fashion had a sort of Marat figure, you know he was the Marat of fashion in a funny way, um, no in a real way and I I think we're that's what we're on the brink of now ever in everything, I don't think it, there's it's ever been more glaring that we need a revolution and a revolution is going to be quite arduous and probably incredibly destructive. Um, but, you know, that's how the phoenix rises from the flames.
Yeah, I mean, the thing I look at McQueen is, and I, I think that the Costume Institute exhibit, um, whenever that was four or five years ago, you know, I mean, you know, to me, when I, you know, first and foremost, he was an incredible designer. You think of all the tailoring that he did that was unlike either things in there. I just stare at how he accomplished that in a, in a, in a, in a, form that has been around for centuries. He managed to move that forward. The things that he did with all the, the engineered jacquards and the prints, which were in that, um, you know, the last runway show that he did with Nick, you know, Nick Knight, he, you know, did the first live stream. You see a lot of that stuff in there. Um, so he kept moving the thing. I mean, he had these big, big picture things that he did and these big themes that he would work off of, but the, the craft was incredible. You know, I think the thing that worries people, the worries the creative designers is that these companies have become very large and they do work off algorithms and analytics. And they do, you see that, they look at, you know, Claire Waite Keller in the piece this week, you know, she talked about what it was like to work with Tom back in the day at Gucci. And, um, you know, a merchandiser would come in the room and, well, we need this, this, and this, and that was it. And now it's charts and what were last season's sales. And Demna spoke about this too, the battle, the fight to get them to do different things, that pressure of um, the commerce side of the business. So we've been so successful in sneakers and try, let's do more of those. And that's not what moves things forward. And I think if, if companies sort of rely on that, and we're starting to see that trend a little bit too much, I think. I think that's the worrisome thing. We all know that these are big brands. We all know that it's a chaotic world. We all know that, you know, you have to appeal to a lot of, you know, these companies are not, it's not like Balenci Cristobal Balenciaga running his little shop on, on, on the, having a George Sank and having a say in what's going on, you know, you've got to work with marketing departments and all of that kind of stuff. So, but I think that is a concern going forward. It's like, is it, you know, I think it's one of the things that's hard, goes back to our beginning of our conversation is like the people who follow fashion sort of know, and you've been following this for 20 years or 30 years or even less, it doesn't, you don't need that, that long of perspective. But you, you know, you're looking at the things that actually move the needle, that, that become part of the history of fashion and are not, not just a one-off thing. Like, oh, it's all about, you know, track pants or bright colors or whatever it is that, you know, craziness at that moment. But it's actually about the things that McQueen did, the things that Margiela did, the things that Raph did at a certain point, Mucha. Um, I mean, Mucha, disrupted so many of our, our, our conventions about clothes. So that's the thing you kind of need. And, and we've now given rise to this incredible business structure with all sorts of you know, information that they didn't like algorithms and all that stuff that we didn't have before that can have a, not such a great impact on, on what it takes to be creative nightmare algorithms are a nightmare mm -hmm. kathy um I'm, i i i have time to ask you one very quick question with a very quick answer you seem to be extremely optimistic are you i am so optimistic 
I, yeah. Yeah, because it's his, I mean, again, it's like, look at the history, the history of things, it, you know, it's like there's, and I, I'm like, I don't think this is at all like 1946, 47 in the new look. I don't think that that's, it's a different time. It's, we live in a much more complicated world. It's four times the size, whatever it is then. I don't think it's like that at all. I just think that the human nature just keeps coming up with interesting things and, inter and self-expression is a big thing, whether it's in what you write or what you wear or what you paint or what you sing. I think those are all, I don't think that changes. I think it's just the only advantage of being, you know, pre-dinosaur that we are is that we have a little bit of, we have a little bit of patience and wisdom. So is it going to take a couple of years? Yeah. It's going to take a couple of years. Warren Buffett says 10 years before the economy repairs itself. Yeah, but we were already told that the climate crisis gave us 10. So if he's saying 10 to get out of the pandemic fallout, we've got a strange kind of symbiotic catastrophe going on there. But I'm the stegosaurus in this conversation. And I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us today. It was really fun. And It was a pleasure to me. Always a pleasure, and I don't know when I'm going to see you again, but I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Kathy. Bye. Okay, bye bye. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.